0: You're listening to Two Beers Until Phrenesis, a podcast where we discuss the ideas of philosophy, ethics, religion, history, and culture. Alongside regular guests and friends, we discuss some of life's big questions over a few beers. Enjoy. I
1: open my almanac. Straight fire in the booth. Here we go. Right, so we're
0: going to try something a little bit different today. Um... I'm just going to basically let YouTube lay all this quantum mechanics stuff on me. I I have basically no background in any kind of science, so I'm basically just going to be an audience surrogate for this whole thing.
2: Your job is to ask questions when it stops making any sense, and it starts getting a bit too much. But essentially, yeah, we're going to go through quantum mechanics, start with the historical perspective, so start with why this sort of even exists in the first place, all that sort of thing. I'm going to start broadly with describing what quantum mechanics is as a field of science. Mm So for a start, it is essentially just the study of the smallest things. Quantum is actually Latin for how much. Essentially it was quantum equals what is the smallest possible amount. And mechanics, just how does it how does it work? What are the equations that govern it? How does it describe our universe? It's one of the most successful physical theories ever tested essentially it makes up everything. So just because something is big doesn't mean it isn't in some sense governed by quantum mechanics because everything is made up of the smallest things. Um, some of the most obviously well-known applications are things like nuclear power plants, atomic clocks, digital cameras, transistors. Sure. Yeah, I sort of wanted to sort of start with a history and all that sort of thing. And also uh, we got Joe with us as well. Mm. Uh, you've, you have actually done some decent amount of studying in maths and things like this and yeah. you have done some modules on quantum mechanics a while
1: ago. Yeah, I might be um, able to chip in with some of the some of the maths bits if we get into that. Nice. Yeah, we'll see. So, cool. Yeah, yeah.
0: I, I mean I I'd pretty much just be happy if at the very least from the, this podcast we can just situate it within a context and then kind of get the rough sense of it across to people listening. Um, yeah. But yeah, anything beyond
2: that, excellent. Yeah, so the goal is to try the best we can not to get too far into the maths but it is worth remembering that ultimately these descriptions of our reality do not really correspond to the way we see the world on our level in what would be called the classical world or the world of objects and things and all this sort of thing, a lot of that becomes way more abstract when you go down to these levels, and so many of the common ways in which we think about the world start to really kind of break down. And so the way which Mm. you have to describe them with analogies aren't necessarily that accurate, but it's the best you can do to try and get an intuition for what the maths is saying. And sort of later on, we'll realise that um, what's really weird about quantum mechanics is, even though we have all of these equations that are governing what's going on, how we interpret what those mean about our physical reality is very much a, an unsettled debate that is still going on now and is extremely interesting. And mm-hmm. that's hopefully what we're going to get to. You may have heard of things like cats being both dead and alive, you know, yeah, infinite universes cat, yeah. branching away, all mm-hmm. these sorts of things. That's when, the, when you start to think about interpretations and the philosophy and the ontological description. What does it mean? But I thought I'd start, going all the way back to 1687. All the way back to 1687. All the way back
1: (laughs) when Newton published Principia Mathematica. Is it a great read? No, he wrote a whole book on why one plus one equals two. Mm. That was the precursor to uh, Principia Mathematica. I haven't actually read it. (laughs) Yeah, so this, this was obviously famous
2: Isaac Newton. Um, this book totally like, it was a whole paradigm shift in the foundations of what we understood about the physical world. It was more or less unchanged for about 200 years. And it it was essentially a description. You might, this is something you still do in um, physics classes. It's, it's, you know, F equals M-A. The world is objects, things. Um, Aristotle before him would describe the world in terms of things needed an agency to move. You needed yeah, to give but that, something. That's,
0: that's trying to give an explanation to the, what you were saying about the classical world. Hmm. The Aristotle's paradigm of science is literally just looking at, okay, what does it look like is happening? I'll describe that. And that that's as far as the model goes. I guess this is just like the model is so abstracted so this, I guess that's why people find it relatively hard it's, to.
2: Yeah, it's it's more that so Aristotle thought that th- objects needed an agency to move because
0: like, yeah. So like the, the the way he would use it is like so gravity, a feather doesn't love the earth as much as a rock. So he would he would describe it because that is pretty much what we're seeing. It's just a it's just a flowery way of explaining yeah. it, but that, that is pretty much as far as the eye can tell what is happening. It seems kind of stupid to us,
2: but like you said, with a feather and a rock. Obviously, in yeah. this example, what's interesting is then later we realized, and one of the famous sort of Newtonian paradigm things, was that the forces that govern both that feather and that rock um, end up meaning that in a vacuum they do hit the ground at the same time. So, yeah, know, so it, has, Earth... it has
0: nothing to do with the feather
2: and the rock. Yeah, so yeah. the Earth loves them both equally. But, yeah. <laughs> um, but it is to do with different forces. And what's interesting is it, that pa- whole paradigm shift came from, say, you have a glass on the table and you it requires some agency. It needs to want to move, whether you push it or something like that. But normally things just want to stay where they are. And the paradigm shift with Newtonian physics was this whole idea that no, if you push something and there's no force to stop it, it's just going to keep moving. One of the main interesting things about Newton is everything was, became sort of objects and tiny little things that would move about, and they followed these, obeyed these simple mechanical laws. This is what we call classical mechanics, and still we use a lot of this idea of what's called classical mechanics um, to describe the macroscopic world. When he tried to apply it to light, a lot of what he thought was, well everything seems to be objects, so light, I mean, it seems to obey the same rules. It goes from one place to another and seems to obey these um, simple equations. So light must be made up of these tiny little dots and bits right, and pieces. Yeah. Um, but at the time, this was competing with the idea that light was a wave. And I mean, well, Des- Descartes before him was actually one of the first people to think that light was made up of little packets. Um, but because Newton was so influential and in Principia Mathematica, Principia Mathematica, however you want to pronounce it, was published, that people just didn't question it. it went, okay, well, light must be objects. This guy knows what he's talking about. He's basically he re- invented calculus and all this sort of thing. He knows what he's talking about. Hmm. Um, and so it kind of wasn't questioned until much later when we had, uh, in about um, 1801, which is, you know, maybe 20 years later, Uh, Thomas Young's double split experiment. Double slit, sorry. And he essentially showed that light behaves like a wave. So this was weird because obviously up to this point they thought, well, okay, it's just like little objects flying at things, right? Yeah. And then what happens is if you put two slits in a thing, in a in a wall or whatever, and you chuck light through it, what you'd expect to see in a Newtonian universe is you get like a beam. Yeah, so if you if you chuck a load of light through a thing, it should project onto the outside wall, and it should just look like two slits that it's gone through, right? Because mm. it goes through one side and goes through the other as well. So, so they're all sort of, all these little bits of light are just going through. But what's interesting is you can show that light, at least when it is in a uh, what's called a coherent form, we'll go into that later, what was weird about these experiments is that that was not the pattern that you see. When light goes through these two slits, you see what's called an interference pattern on the other side, on on where it is projected onto. And what that basically means is that light isn't just like going through single-mindedly and sort of hitting the other side of the wall. At least it isn't always. Um, But it's it's showing a sort of pattern of like multiple um, strips of light that are sort of like, you know, much stronger in the middle and then sort of like get weaker and weaker and weaker until they fade away. And essentially, if you can imagine like a swimming pool or something like this, And let's say you have a barrier in the middle of the swimming pool. Mm -hmm. Um, In this barrier, you've got two slits again. Now the water's perfectly still. Let's imagine, but you're on one side of the barrier, and you like slap the water or something like that, right? So you're creating a load of waves. Yeah. Now what happens is when those waves hit the split, hit those little slits, right? What what are you going to see on the other side? You're going to see little sort of like shock waves propagating out of these two gaps into the still water, right? Um, What happens when those two sort of like shock waves start to touch each other as they, as it, put you know, you imagine two circles just sort of like... Going outwards. Yeah, going yeah. outwards. And what you see is when they start to interfere, like that's the technical word, they start to interfere with each other, you get the the peaks of those waves, so the bits where the water's going upwards, um, add together. So like where the two slits are sort of um, coming together, you'll get larger peaks, larger waves, mm. and where the two sort of troughs, yeah, are, um, sort of meet up, you'll get much... Uh, you get less water, essentially. So if you can imagine how that would propagate onto the back end of the swimming pool, you're not going to see um, a simple pattern of just, like, two slits coming through. What you're going to see is this pattern of, like, bits where there was, like, extra water, where the tr- where the peaks were higher because of the interference, as well as, like, extra troughs as well. Yeah. And so this is what an interference pattern is. It's where you have a wave, or something that is like a wave, in, in this case it was a swimming pool, but... For these guys, this was light. So in this case, they were thinking about light in terms of like, why is it creating this pattern? It's just like an interference pattern, like that you see with waves. So that's what it must be, right? So light must propagate like a wave. So it's just a thing that causes like almost like this vibration, Mm. and this vibration travels out, and we can see that by doing this double slit experiment. And then Maxwell came along quite a while later, actually. This is you know quite a long time later, and totally wrote down all the maths describing these waves. So what kind of date is this? So this is around 1850. Now we'll be getting to um, James Maxwell. Um, And essentially he just formalized this into equations that worked for these kinds of light. And by this point, this is getting pretty complicated because we've already figured out that light is this weird, it's what's called electromagnetic uh, radiation, which basically means it's, related to electricity and it's related to magnets but essentially it's it was quite a complicated description that described how these waves oscillate through the air and we had all the mass to sort of write down how these were behaving so we could describe why we get this interference pattern on the back wall we could describe how light propagates and interferes with itself and all this sorts of stuff and so at this point people were just like okay well light's a wave this makes sense right it's not little objects like newton thought it is This thing that sort of interferes itself, it's a pattern, it's continuous, great. Okay, cool. Sorted. I'm guessing there's going to be a, uh, <laughs> a but. but. <laughs> yes. I mean, this was confirmed in 1887. There was um, by Heinrich Hertz. And you, I bet you can't guess where the term Hertz for frequency and things like came from. It's this guy for proving that the Maxwell equations were not just a description, but they they worked in experimental um, situations, that these, these equations perfectly described what was going on. And by this point, so we're like, talking right at the end of the 19th century, right? stuff like light bulbs were getting, all the the rage, people were loving their light and their electricity and things like this. It's all great, you know, Um, after Newton basically wrote the rules for the Industrial Revolution hundreds of years ago. Um, And... So people wanted to figure out, okay, what's the best way we can make light bulbs? What's the, How efficient can we make? We want as much proper light as we can get out of this light bulb with as little energy as possible. Those were the days before energy-saving light bulbs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've all regressed. <laughs> and right at the turn of the 20th century, we have the guy who's considered basically the founder of quantum mechanics. Um sort of starts to come into the picture but before that we'll we'll sort of talk about how light how light bulbs were thought to work well how the light propagating out of light bulbs was thought to work um and this was described by this graph that was called like the Rayleigh Jeans law they were going off of uh Maxwell's Maxwell's equations pretty much entirely and they were just going well okay well what we should see is that when you put a load of heat into something uh, this actually worked for like really low heat, so for like infrared and things like this, this is totally fine. Once you start to get really hot, um, what the experiments showed is that um, you don't you don't end up having tons of ultraviolet radiation. What you end up having is, it glows a certain temperature, right? So yeah. you, you might notice the stars, right? They glow a certain uh, color depending on their size. Yeah. Um, the reason why that is is because um, the temperature is related to the wavelength of light that is predominantly being emitted. And so this was weird because that's what the world seemed to look like, right? We had different heat and different things like this corresponded to different light when it you know, when it wasn't red hot, let's say, and it was in the it would just be like if you're sort of hot like we are. Um, that's just infrared radiation, right? It's the same thing, but it's just it's infra- in the infrared spectrum, so we can't see it unless we have infrared goggles. Um, but you keep moving up, and then things start to go into the visible spectrum, so we can actually see the heat, and then mm-hmm. it goes beyond us, and it goes into UV, ultraviolet, you've yeah. got X-rays and gamma rays. Um, and, what's, and essentially, the original predictions were that, well, surely if you heat something up, it should all just be in these infinitesimally small ultraviolet, um, radiation. Because as soon as you get some energy into these into these atoms and into these systems, they should just qu- em- instantly be emitting this really high frequency, tiny amount of light that just carries away all the energy. Obviously, this is not what we see. And so there was this weird thing where experiment and reality was not conforming with what um, the equations were telling us about what light was. And so this is where Max Planck came along. And essentially, he was trying to figure out okay, how can we get like um, the most efficient uh, version of a light bulb? How can we make most of the energy translate into visible light? This is what we want. We want a particular part of the electromagnetic spectrum, right? We want as much energy as possible to be in this part. We don't want it to be all like infrared, which we can't see. We don't want it to be all like ultra high sunburn. Mm-hmm. You don't want to get a tan from a light bulb. Um, so, yeah, what, what's the best way to do that? And essentially, Max Planck didn't really, was like, well, why the hell does it look like, using what we know, everything should just be ultraviolet, it should just be these ultra high frequency stuff as soon as you get any energy into the system. This was all based around things called black bodies. If you want to go google that, we're not going to go into detail of what those mean, but they were essentially a theoretical way of talking about the frequency of light that was being emitted. It was just like this theoretical perfect way to describe the maths that was going on. Um, And Max Planck basically went, okay, well, I can't figure this out. I don't understand why these equations just don't work. Why is if, if light's this wave, why isn't every you know, why doesn't the our predictions for how the light will be emitted, the frequencies that will be emitted, not conforming? And he essentially just went oh, in what he called a last act of desperation, he just introduced this a number into the equation. So he went it was basically making it so it could only oscillate within a certain harmonic, which is to say that he introduced something that made the frequency have to be a multiple of a certain number. That So that is to say that the frequency couldn't just be any arbitrary frequencies. You couldn't have like an infinitely small frequency, because um, that was the problem. It's like, well, surely if you look at the prediction, all the energy should just go off towards like infinitely small frequencies. But you can't, but he basically introduced this thing and goes, well, you, what if we quantize it? What if we put this little term in there? Yeah. And hey, he adjusted it a bit, whatever, got it like fiddled with it, just trying to, to make it work, and suddenly he got a curve that perfectly explained how the level, different levels of different uh, um, frequencies of light were being emitted from these black bodies, or essentially extrapolate that to the real world, how light bulbs and things were emitting certain wavelengths of light um given the amount of heat but this was like what the hell i mean light's waves right i've talked about the swimming pool analogy like that's yeah. what that's what light does right it, it does these patterns it interferes with itself um it's continuous and yet here comes this weird constant he didn't really, like, he didn't know what to think of it. And I mean, Rayleigh and Jeans, who were like the two guys who came up with these original laws, actually thought this was an embarrassment. They were like, this is disgraceful, this is awful, this is mm. bollocks, this is because we, this is something we don't know about uh, black bodies, it's something we don't know about um, light or something, we're missing something here. Why does this random constant um, actually work? Um, and this this was right at the turn of the century, this was just 1900. Mm. And, as some people who are into their science might know, five years later, um, Einstein published yeah. stuff like special relativity, stuff from Brownian. But in one year, he basically completely, totally changed the paradigm of science, as, as many people know. Um, this wasn't general relativity yet. That came later. But this was but this is something that he would go on to win a Nobel Prize for. And this was essentially, he took Planck's constant and made sense of it. He went, mm. okay, what does this mean? This means that light is a particle again, in some sense, but it's also kind of a wave. So it's kind of a particle and a wave because, well, we have this constant that kind of causes it, and this is where the concept of a photon came from. Um, and he would go on to, this is the only Nobel Prize Einstein actually won, was for discovering the oh, photon. Really? Yeah, yeah, which is something that a lot of people don't realise. It's like general relativity, because that is more is more of a theoretical framework, didn't. yeah. Um, but this is what he won the Nobel Prize so in, for. So
0: in terms of, the, so is the photon something fundamentally new? like. Or is it building on previous kind of understandings of things, or is it is it
2: like just a total game changer? So he related energy um, to the frequency of light, so um, pl- times Planck's constant. So he he went, he took this idea and he went, well, what does this mean? What does it mean that frequencies can only exist as multiples of a particular number? That means that light must have particles; it must be it must come in discrete packets. <laughs> Essentially, what he was saying was that energy cannot be um, passed on from a photon to let's say an electron electron is another particle that you get in atoms. Um, you can't pass on energy um, in a continuous manner. It has to be done in these packets. And this was important because he he made experiments like um, uh, where he, where you'd fire light at a metal plate basically. and if the original wave like thing was true, then you, what you should see is like you just as you increase the amplitude of the light, if you just chuck more and more light, at a plate you should see more and more electrons firing off this plate you should see because those the photons will well at this point not sure about photons yet but this was sort of the th- the idea is if it was a wave um the waves would interact with photons uh, sorry they interact with electrons and these in- electrons would get enough energy to be like oh yeah let's just bugger off now guys and they would fly fire off the plate right so that's what you would expect to see um but what's weird is you would only see this um Dependent on the frequency of the light. You didn't see this if you just chucked more like, you know, infrared light at a plate. Mm -hmm. So if you chucked lower frequency light at it, but loads of it, at no point are any electrons being fired. So they were like, well, that's interesting because that can only be the case if it's individual photons Mm -hmm. that can carry a certain packet of energy. And once that packet of energy is high enough, AKA the light is a high enough frequency, then it can interact with the electron in such a way that it cr- increases the electron's energy enough um, that the electron can bugger off. Uh, and one, one way I, I sort of started to think about this, and I don't, whether this is a useful analogy or not, is imagine that you've got a load of soft balls, right, so like spongy balls, and there's like a window in front of you, and you've decided you want to like try and break the window. So you've got a load of these soft, crappy balls, right, and you're just throwing them at the window... <laughs> And it's like, they're not doing anything, because it's just like, those sh- crappy soft balls, right? Um, so, you know, you can throw as many, you can get like a whole bucket of them, just start throwing them at the window, just clip, as many as you want. The window's not going to break, it's not even going to crack, they're just spongy crappy balls, they just bounce off. Yeah. There's just not enough there. But if you get like an eight ball, or like a, you know, a pool ball, or a snooker ball, or whatever, and you throw it at the window, the same same sort of like, you know, same amount you were throwing the spongy ball, it's going to smash the window, go straight through, right? Mm, yeah. Um, the, the only, and this is the thing, it's like, if, it was a wave if you were using like a hose or a super soaker the only thing that would make sure the window smash was the pressure of the water so if you've just got enough water even if it was like you know fairly low pressure water you just have to get enough and it would like break through the window because the pressure but but this was one of the things so this means that like okay well individual things if they're not enough energy in these packets they cannot actually bring what was Um, called energy levels, which we'll get to later. They cannot excite the electrons enough. And so this is, broadly speaking, the reason why uh, the photon was discovered. It was, like, to do with energy levels, and it was to do with the fact that experimental evidence was not conforming with it. Planck sort of adjusted it, and then Einstein went, ah, this means that there are these discrete packets of energy. And he related to an equation that, if you want to go look up, you can, but it's, it's really simple. It's just E equals HF, which is just the energy is equal to Planck's constant, which is this minimum value multiple multiplied by the frequency. So it just means that this number, Planck's constant, has to be multiplied by the frequency, and it can't exist in a smaller amount or a non-multiple of that number. <laughs> So yeah, done a lot of talking so far, we're almost we're almost at like the really meaty stuff of quantum mechanics, so we're getting getting through some of the history, and we're already realising that there's this weird stuff going on where we're having these experiments where it's like, well, double split, it's like a wave, and then Einstein comes along and Planck, and they're just like, well, also it's a particle, it has to be sort of a particle because it has these particle properties, but we still see diffusion patterns, we still see these sort of, so how do we explain those sorts of things? Yeah, trying to get a um, handle on how
0: it all actually works in terms of, you know, so that the the model matches up
2: with functionally what's happening. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and this was what's so weird. It was was this was the math that was describing what was going on with light, but everyone did not like it at all. Like, you know, Einstein himself hated it. Like, they were all just like, well, this is totally shattering this nice, neat idea of something being one form and described by one set of equations and and not being it's sort of like and this is where you might hear the term particle wave duality this is where it was all birthed in 1905 and that that was his Nobel Prize in 1921 um, he won the Nobel Prize for that I should sort of start to introduce this guy called Niels Bohr so this guy um we're sort of going up to about 1913 now um, and Niels Bohr was another guy who's a massive player on the scene of quantum mechanics in, in its originals and as, as we've already sort of established like this is where quantum mechanics really started with with Planck and Einstein and they've just, well, this is particle as well to do with light and all this sort of thing and Niels Bohr comes along and he goes this should have implications about the atom and what what, it, what the atom looks like and all that sort of thing and up until this point there was like a Kiwi scientist called Rutherford um and he had this model of the atom which you Kind of familiar. I mean, it's not quite like uh, the one we use in textbooks, but it's pretty much there. It's, you know, it's, it's electrons that are negatively charged, and they're orbiting something. You know, it's like some positively charged nucleus, right? They thought that it was literally kind of like things, negatively charged things, actually orbiting a nucleus. Um, and Ball went, well, hang on a minute, so we've got this new weird quantum mechanics stuff, so we can take this further. Um, this was actually presented with Rutherford as well. So um, Niels Bohr actually studied under Rutherford. Um, so this was kind of like him taking that model and going on and using Planck's constant to basically show that the electrons, as they're orbiting this atom, so in, this is the Rutherford model, you've got this negatively charged thing, it's just whooping around the nucleus, right? It's just, but what should happen, right, is that if the, if the light can just get rid of the energy in any amount, any tiny little amount, what you should see is this electron should just be giving away this energy in tiny amounts, take away energy from that, Um, orbital rotation, or you try to slow it down, it should just immediately just like decay into the nucleus, the atom, and all the atoms should just suddenly completely blow up. Mm. Of course this is not what we see. And so Niels Bohr came along and explained this using Planck's constant, and using the idea that there was a minimum packet of energy to say that electrons can only be in what are called certain energy states. So if an electron's in a certain state, there has to be a certain amount of energy, a threshold of energy you need to give it or take away from it in order for its orbit to change in the atom. Uh, we're still talking about it in terms of orbits. Of course, this picture kind of changes later on, but um, for now, that's more or less what um, textbooks now still use. In, in If you're doing physics, you're going to see Niels Bohr's picture of the atom which I is say is,
0: that's that's pretty much what yeah.
2: what we would have seen and and i mean even i, th- I think you probably do it at gcse energy levels I, I can't remember if it's gcse or a level at this point but um you do you, do, you basically have atoms electrons flying yeah. around and we talk about the different energy levels for these electrons to be at and this is a, how a lot of chemistry happens right it's just I never paid it, attention GCSE. yes
1: i think you do you do like the the rutherford model and the plum pudding model whatever they call it i think oh, yeah. i think you only really get into energy levels at a technical level context, probably A-level. right? Um Like, E equals HF that you mentioned earlier, that was all A-level mm. type stuff.
2: Yeah. Uh, you mentioned the plum pudding model. This was even before yeah. uh, Rutherford. Essentially, they just thought that, like...
1: It was all just a gooey mess. <laughs> it was all
2: just a, a gooey mess of speaking. this... Of, like, a... Of a positively charged blob, essentially, yeah. that had... Let's, say, let's call them like raisins that were negatively charged all sort of stuck into this blob. It, like, that's why it's kind of like a plum pudding model. It was all just like this bleh, That was kind of like, you know, and, and, and then later on Rutherford described it as orbits. And then Niels Bohr comes along and goes, well, there's also these energy level things. That we And that's the reason why these atoms aren't just instantly exploding. Because the energy can't be carried away from these electrons uh, the way that we thought they might have been able to so yeah that was Niels Bohr coming onto the scene as we know he's get, he's a pretty big player so we'll we'll come back to him in a minute obviously then World War One happens and not a lot really happens during World War One. I. I think a lot of the scientists are kind of a uh, you know oh. all in, in well, physics well, yeah
0: it's it's interesting because obviously like there's the whole phrase what is it the mother of all invention is necessity is that is that I don't know if that's that sounds right yeah I don't know if that's the actual phrase he yeah, was no, sounds, saying obviously about correct. trying to trying to create the light bulb and that obviously drove a lot of yeah energy. trying to figure out how to make yeah. a light bulb as efficiently so as possible did world war 1 not like spur any invention in this field or did, were they not just not really
2: um, I mean, for the most part if anything it probably with quantum mechanics and pure theoretical physics because we're talking about theoretical physics for the most part obviously there's experimental verification that will occur later on, and that's where Nobel Prizes and things get won. But for the most part, these guys were writing down these descriptions and equations, predicting from sort of first principles or from the maths, or looking at previous experiments and trying to describe, and trying to explain why they work the way they do. And later on, their equations will be experimentally verified. Mm. Um, but during the war, I mean... Oh, yeah, general, I guess
0: the international kind yeah, of stuff and stops. there's, and there's yeah. a lot
2: of um, the collaboration. Sort of, I, I, at least with the history of quantum mechanics, I'm not like, I'm not a like, a historian when it comes to this stuff. But um, there is definitely, like, a little bit of a pause, um, at least when it comes to... And, you know, maybe, you yeah, know, maybe no, no, if you that's... really zoom in to look at, like, what was the details are going on, I'm sure they were... Yeah, that, they were still that's, that's certainly
0: understandable in World War I. I, I.
2: I would be surprised if nothing happened in World War II. Yeah, uh, yeah. 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 And we'll, we'll get to World war okay, two sure. and sort of what happened there, but... Um, yeah, so we're actually... We're going to zip forward all the way to 1924 now. So this is, um, you know, about six years after the war... Um, I remember remember it well. Yeah, And obviously there's probably been loads of stuff going on in the background, but um, for the sake of uh, getting to the next bit, we're going to introduce another character. Um, And I've heard lots of different pronunciations of his name. I'm going to call him uh, Dubois. I think that's the correct way to pronounce it because he's French. But ah, I'm, not say, yeah. so I'm not gonna say it like that because I think that's the correct way to say it. But people say either De Broy or De Broly. Depending on whether Can we call him De Broly? That makes him sound I like hate that, an absolute I Chad. We're going we're gonna call, I him, did call De him De Broglie for
1: a bit, so I just couldn't fucking say his name. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's we, he's we De Broglie
2: from now on. De Broccoli. So the Broccoli man. <laughs> I, know, I can't. I can't do that. So this guy is weirdly like. When I was looking up a lot of different other uh, histories and people explaining, it, he's often left out at a lot of the histories, which is which is interesting uh, to me. Like at least the briefer ones. And he he was a really um, uh, important player in quantum mechanics. And in 1924, he predicted uh, matter waves. So essentially, what he was doing was going well. Okay, light's a wave well, electrons and things like that, also a wave. So this is, you know, this is like a whoa sort of moment. And it, this was a guy who worked in like radio broadcasting and things like that. So he, he had a very good understanding of of Maxwell's equations of light and, and waves and things like that. And he he just sort of extrapolated it and predicted that all matter was had some kind of wave-like properties. Even if they were still, we still you know, again, we have these wave and particle-like things going on and, oh God, what's happening? Mm. Um, but, you know, if, if photon could be sort of like a wave and a particle as well, why can't an electron or a proton, or whatever else, whatever arbitrary particle you want to um, pick. And this was much later on, just, just demonstrated in 1927 this by by experiments confirming that electrons also exhibited wave like properties. Much sort of harder experiments to prove with with light, but um, that was a 1929 Nobel Prize for him. So as you can tell, like, a lot of these people are all Nobel Prize winners because at this this is an absolute honeypot of Nobel prizes. Is quantum mechanics? You've got so many around this around these couple of decades. You've got so many people winning uh, Nobel prizes for these things. Um. He was also the guy who originated, which we'll come back to later, uh, a thing called pilot wave theory. But we're not going to go onto that yet. Sort of going back to the uh, mid-1920s, um, I'm going to introduce a guy called Heisenberg. Um, and this guy is another major player in quantum mechanics, as all these guys are. Um, and he was trying to figure out how to describe what we were kind of finding out about particles and waves and all these sorts of things. Like, how do we describe what is going on? What are the mechanics of of these tiny smallest things that we can experimentally um look at um and he was formulating something called matrix mechanics which <laughs> i mean i can't i don't even i haven't even looked at it so i'm not even gonna try and go there because obviously it, this was all kind of like developed on later on but um he was trying to think about the math that was going to describe these weird quantum properties and the way that things were working and at this point um these are mathematicians that are pulling all the tricks out of the book that maths had to offer at this point and inventing a lot of maths just to help describe what was going on this is how difficult this stuff was how weird these properties that things had were and also a guy called paul dirac who was a sort of french but also sort of grew up in bristol um guy who was very 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 shy and um essentially kicked off the entire field of electro um, quantum electrodynamics which is Sounds scary, but it's basically the smallest, electro, so we're talking about electromagnetic spectrum, light and things like that, um, and dynamics, how it behaves. So it's essentially probably what
1: we describe as a savant today, hmm. it probably wasn't a diagnosis then, but he would have been on the Asperger scale, sort of at the top, probably. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Was very, very socially awkward, um, didn't fit in at all with people, didn't really work with people, but an extraordinary mind nonetheless. And he, yeah. as I said, he spurned many, many fields of... Hmm. of quantum theory.
2: Yeah, and unfortunately, just poorly remembered, like compared to some of the other main players. Understandably, Einstein, you know, did some pretty cool stuff. um, (laughs) Did some um, pretty amazing stuff, but uh, like definitely
1: underappreciated. We'll probably get into it a little bit later, but as I was saying to you earlier, and I actually invented a whole new notation to try and describe some of the stuff called Dirac notation, which you may or may not have heard of, which is just essentially when things get very, very hard to write out, he developed quite a compact way to just, put vectors in um, of descriptions of Mm. quantized properties of uh, Mm. particles. Right, so Uh, things like spin or whatever, which we'll maybe get to later and describe, Um,
2: obviously you have different states of these fundamental properties that they can exist in, and they didn't really have a way to write, you know, the easiest way to write it down was to literally have an arrow pointing <laughs> in the direction of what the the uh, property of this fundamental thing you were describing. So, again, we're talking all these sort of different bits of notation and mathematics totally being, you know, re- renovated to, in order to accommodate all these crazy experiments and the things that we were figuring out at the time. So, we have nothing to do with this. <laughs> 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 not, even, not even a close... And yeah, and he's also the guy who mentioned spin we might get to that later. It's another weird qu- quantum property that only really exists on like the quantum level. Obviously it has effects that propagate outwards, but he was one of the guys who really started to describe um, things like that. I have an actually interesting, uh, just to get you an idea of the characters of Dirac and Heisenberg. So I have this uh, quote that I pulled from like a, a it was like a um, a book that I, I looked at the Guardian article that was reviewing this book and just took some quotes out of it basically. But it, I'm just going to read off of this. So in August of 1929, two of the founding fathers for quantum mechanics, Werner Heisenberg and Paul Dirac, were sailing on a ship to a conference in Japan. Both still in their 20s, unmarried, they made an odd couple. Heisenberg was a hedonist who constantly flirted and danced with women on the ship while Dirac, an Edwardian geek as uh, Graham Farmello puts it suffered agonies if forced into any kind of socialising or small talk So why do you dance? Dirac asked his companion Heisenberg when there are nice girls, it's a pleasure, Heisenberg replied. Dirac pondered this notion, then blurted out, but Heisenberg, how do you know beforehand that the girls are nice?
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: it's just like, gives you a total yeah, idea yeah. of his character, and just like totally, yeah, like Inside. you said, very likely um, on, on to, to, you know, compared to, to these days' standards on the spectrum, all that sort of thing, but an absolute genius. Um Heisenberg almost being the total opposite. He was one of the people who helped work on um, a lot of this maths. And so to, and together they more or less came up with a lot of these notations and a lot of ways to um, figure this stuff out. Um, and so I've, I've sort of missed out a lot of the um, very fundamental bits of equations and whatever that are sort of being introduced to describe all this weirdness that's sort of going on with particles and waves. All this weird maths was coming up. And then a guy called Erwin Schrödinger basically came onto the scene... Um, and showed an equivalence between a lot of these like weird math systems that were sprouting up, and he sort of generalized them if you like. Which in math, basically, you're putting it into a more abstract form that's a better, a broader description of what's going on, or a more fundamental description of the same sort of thing. Um, and he generalized all this the matrix mechanics stuff and all this like um, crazy notation into what is going to be probably the most fundamental thing we're going to talk about in quantum mechanics, which is the Schrodinger equation. The Schrodinger equation is essentially a complete description of the evolution of a quantum system. So what I mean by that is that if you take a quantum object or quantum thing and you want to know how it's going to... um, evolve so how it's going to change over time the schrodinger equation describes that and essentially takes um this other very very important concept which we'll try to describe a little bit joe can help me out on this one which is called the wave function and we've already talked about waves and interference patterns and things like this we've got a little bit of an idea of like what it means to be a wave-like property um, and essentially, uh, the wave functions its a mathematical description of these waves, of yeah. of the wave-like properties of quantum particles. And the Schrodinger equation essentially takes this wave function and it um, describes how the wave function evolves over time, how it changes over time, given a quantum system. So there's a lot of jargon being thrown around, <laughs> I understand. But these are really, really, really important ideas. It's like so these... Ant-Man and the Wasp, mate. <laughs> Yeah, in those films where they just like throw away like yeah. the wave quantum chrono quantum, wave function, <laughs> the quantum the quantum van the quantum fucking exhaust pipe,
0: <laughs> quantum everything.
2: Yeah, so well that's an interesting thought actually because if you think about it, um, if Ant Man shrunk and all his atoms retained the same size, surely that means also Planck's constant would also get smaller to accommodate that. In which case, he would just die instantly because the heat would be immediately
1: evaporated. That's into- what the suit is for was <laughs> the suit's <laughs> Those for. producers really thought of everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, they actually thought of yeah, it Yeah, I, I think, Hannah, I
0: think so. they talk about Planets Constant
1: ah. at one,
0: like once or twice. Yeah. And I think that is the whole point of the suit. Right. This is why the guy who made it
2: is a genius, because he's, he's made a suit that will stop that from happening. So it'll retain all electromagnetic radiation, all light and, you know, ultraviolet rays that would emit, imme- like, all these things that would totally disrupt everything. Apparently Because so. I, I imagine, I, I mean, this is such a difficult... I'm pretty sure he
0: takes or... the helmet off, though, and still shrinks. So just yeah, because
2: yeah, yeah. you need to see his face. Nonsense, because Paul yeah.
0: Rudd, yeah. He, needs, yeah. he needs to get the money and yeah. contractually rise to show his
2: face. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm sure there is definitely some people on the internet who have to, who have definitely gone into how tanks Constant would work in that case. <laughs> um, is it you, Nye? <laughs> <laughs> Behind, like, 50 accounts. You've got me thinking about it. <laughs> oh, God. Um. Yeah, and so we've just introduced really important concepts. So these... B's the Schrodinger equation and the wave function that it um, that it is describing yeah. everything you need to know about how a quantum system works obviously there's other sort of things going on but for the most part if you want to know something about it this is your equation um and we won't yeah i, I don't i don't think we will to go into like breaking down all the parts of it i'm sure but we'll, like maybe in like another episode we'll be talk about maybe when we get into interpretations we might start talking about like different parts of the equation or like things like mm. that um but for now this is like this is more or less where we still are today, and this was this was nineteen the mid 1920s So this um, Schrödinger wrote this down. Schrödinger equation explains how a quantum system evolves. Um, is weird because again we've got this weird particle wave like thing, but the thing is it's it's neither. So what ends up happening in, in experiments, and I'll sort of this is the first time I'm going to start invoking physical interpretations of what's going, but it's the only way you can start to really explain it without digging into the maths. Um, is that as the wave function evolves, so you can imagine this sort of wave evolving and the Schrodinger equation tells you how that wave function evolves, you get all these diffusion patterns, you get all these things, but the minute you measure what's actually going on um, to try and find out where the particles are going it's a particle and a wave right so let's let's so if it's if it's moving like a wave and you get diffusion patterns and you get wave like things well let's stick a detector in there let's just try find out okay where are the particles then if there's like if we're seeing wave like stuff why why you know why are particles the things that we interact with why are those the things interacting let's try find out where the particles are so let's go back to the double split experiment right and we're firing light through these two slits in this case uh, much later on they start to be able to get the technology this is in the probably 60s, 70s now, that they start to be able to fire individual photons. We're like talking little individual particles through these, okay. at these slits. And then what they do is there's a detector at the back and it just finds out, okay, well, where did the particles hit the yeah, screen? Where where they ended up, yeah. Yeah, so we, I mean, we'll be able to see what a pattern emerge. So let's fire a load of photons through these two slits, right? So what would you imagine if it's a particle? All of the photons, in this case, <laughs> would just line up into two neat lines because they would either go through one slit or they go through the other slit. But what you see, um, if you just fire these photons through the two slits, is you see that weird interference pattern again. That thing that looks like waves have just gone through the slits. But you've been firing individual photons. How do they know to make a wave like that? If you're firing individual ones, surely that means that, you know, they're going through one slit or the other. Like, what's going on here? This is this is mental, right? If, if we evolve the way the photons are going according to the Schrodinger equation, well, if you evolve the wave function according to the Schrodinger equation, Sure, we should see an interference pattern, but where? Why? Where are the Where are the particles coming from? Why are there particles? Why Why is it when we see the thing? There's like an individual thing. So, okay, let's try to find out where the particles went. Let's try to find out which slit they went through. Okay, so let's let's put a detector on each slit and let's fi- see if we can figure out. Okay, let's fire another load of photons at it and see which detector it hits before it goes hit and hits the back. Okay, so firing firing loads of photons at it. Oh, cool, that photon went through B. Oh, cool, that photon went through B. Oh, great, yeah, it seems to be about 50%, whatever. But hang on a minute, the pattern at the back is now just two lines again. So hang on, the minute we try to find out where the photon went through the two slits, it's no longer a wave. But then we take away the detectors. Oh, it's a wave pattern. What? Yeah. How, how has that happened? And how, does, how do the photons know to make a wave-like pattern over time if you fire individual ones eventually it'll look like a wave pattern even though they're just like individual dots that are being drawn how does it know um and so what what the uh, schrodinger equation says is that well we've got this wave-like thing that's evolving and what the predominant interpretation was at the time is that as soon as you interact with the system in some sense as soon as you observe the system or try to look at the system it collapses the wave function collapses into one particular place. I'm guessing this is where the whole Schrodinger's cat comes from. Right. So I'm wondering if we should, yeah, let's. Should we do Schrodinger's cat? Yeah, so now? I guess to, to
1: explain, well, explain <coughs> to an extent about the collapsing thing. Hmm. So one way to think of the wave function, which is how I was kind of taught, albeit in very simple terms. So when I looked at it from a maths context, we kept the physics to sort of a minimum, and it was basically just the quantum system that you referenced earlier, now is basically just. A particle is somewhere in this region of space, but we don't know where. Hmm. And what the wave function does is doesn't describe where it is, but it describes a probability density hmm. where it is. So it might be we can say we can't say the particle is here, but we can say it's within this sub-region with a probability of X percent, whatever. It doesn't really right. matter. Yeah. So you can then build up what's called a probability density function, which is just a mathematical thing to describe where you are more likely to find the particle in this region of space at any time and then you set the uh, Schrodinger equation off running if it's a time dependent one you'll be able to see it kind of the density function move around the whole of the space um, through time and through space so the Schrodinger equation's got a time and a space I don't know if you mentioned that but yeah, there's there's a time dependent version which is more complicated where, um, where the particle is depends on the space and also what time in your in your system you're measuring at and the time independent version is more simple where you just ignore time and you look at where it is in the, in the space and the act of actually measuring what where the particle is so when you're saying earlier now about putting the detectors in that was that was a measurement collapses the wave function just means that the probability density function changes you have, it converges, it, to one, it converges to one it converges to one so you have we now know that the probability uh, that the particle is in this particular point in space with 100% probability and 0% everywhere else. And that is effectively yeah. the effect of measuring it. Yeah. Collapses the wave function, i.e. changes that density function to, this is definitely at this point. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously this
2: this is counterintuitive. You're not alone. This is, obviously we're already getting into like the very, very weird stuff. So this is heavy, heavy things to think start thinking about. And obviously I have no idea like how... If I,
0: if I understood that correctly, so is it kind of like... Analysis by reduction, like
2: finding where it isn't, to find out where it is. What Joe described there with the po- probability thing, so there was a guy called Max Born, so and around the sort of same time, mid-20s, he, he described, um, he was able to describe where you'd likely to find the photon, uh, based on this wave, to the, and basically it's where you square the wave function so you get a probability, and that's all you sort of need to know for now. You just essentially square it, and then that gives you a probability uh, distribution. And so people like uh, Heisenberg, so Heisenberg was very much an advocate of the idea that what it meant to be a photon was to exist in a, as a probability space mm-hmm. until it became an actual thing, until it was measured and actually became in, a, in one of those potential places it could be. And that until that point, it is this probability density. Um, now, Niels Bohr, who I mentioned earlier uh the atom yeah, guy who i like, really figured out he he was um who's sort of like one of the more sort of charismatic and influential people who was sort of like the originator of what a lot of people um consider to be the copenhagen interpretation so this is i'm going to sort of go into that but okay. um, his idea was that it's a bad question to ask where the photon is it's a bad question to ask what it means um to ha- be a photon um before right. it goes it just it you know that's just doesn't it's not a question you can ask and there was all these uh we'll get into complementarity and things like this later on but it was, it was based on other things that um you can't measure one thing without losing information about another so there was again this is why copenhagen as an interpretation when we talk about wave functions collapsing or what it means to be the wave function before it Uh, collapses are subtly different depending on who you're you know which person's interpretation of Copenhagen it is they all were sort of have this idea of wave function collapsing so the maths describes this evolution and it exists in this probability space but you measure it and it's immediately in one place it's not it's not a wave that's everywhere at once you never interact with a wave and that's the point it Propagates like a wave. It propagates like this probability space. But then, as soon as there's an, any interaction, there's a detection. You see one photon. You see one thing in that place. And this is what's the, the crux of what was so difficult to describe. Um, and we'll get into in a minute why this starts to create weirdness in, in how you physically interpret what that means. And we've already sort of um, we're already sort of introduced this through the lens of Copenhagen, like yeah. I said, but, um, with probability spaces and things like this. Um. And Max Born, the guy who was talking about figuring it, you know, he just, it was a footnote, I think, in one of his original papers, just, oh yeah, by the way, if you want the probability of where it's going to be, you just square the wave function, you get it. Because a, a probability has to be between zero and one. So if you square it, you're going to get a, a positive number. So you know, it just converts it into a probability. And in a letter, Einstein uh, wrote to Born, God does not play dice. And this is a famous uh, quote from Einstein, because he, he just was like, well, this doesn't make sense that, it's not a deterministic yeah. system, which is just going to go into one place. It just seems to be this probability space until it is made real. Um, and Einstein really did not like this. This He was like, well, there's something wrong here. It's like, it's, mm. if it's not deterministic, it can't be fundamentally probabilistic at the most uh, fundamental level. And Niels Bohr was much more, the, again, the atom guy, he was much more just like... This is what it is, and he just he. I don't know. I haven't got any source for this. so I don't know if this is actually what he said, but he he apparently replied to Einstein: "Stop telling God what to do." (laughs) Um, (laughs) The implication being, this is what reality is. If it's probabilistic, if it works in whatever this, um, like I said, his interpretation was more just like not necessarily probability space, but more just like it doesn't. It's a bad question to ask what's going on. It's almost like a more philosophically, yeah, fundamental, yeah. and this led to a, a sort of well, I mean, it was already part of they were these guys would debate a lot. Einstein and Niels Bohr were big sort of intellectual competitors, if you like. I mean, they had a lot of respect for each other, obviously, but yeah, yeah, you know yeah. it, it's not in, like Richard
0: Dawkins' debates. Yeah, yeah, I mean, in the sciences they were a bit
2: slapping each other as much as they could. Every, everything, you know, uh, even when they would admit they're wrong later and like change their mind to something one or the other, they were often like very much sparring back and forth with these sort of different interpretations. Einstein was like, well, this can't be what's going on. It can't be this probabilistic thing. There has to be what are called hidden variables. There has to be something that this photon or whatever has built into it that's going to describe how it's going to create an interference pattern. Something we're not seeing. There's something deeper that's going on that must... It must be something like this, because this is crazy. Why why would it be probabilistic? And we'll get onto that later and, like, the implications of hidden variables and where that sort of uh, went. Um, But essentially... Nobody liked the Schrödinger. Even Schrödinger himself hated his Schrödinger equation. He was like, Well, this is just crazy. Like this, what yeah, this, what does not, this mean? It's not helpful. He, yeah. did, you know, he was very uncomfortable with this Copenhagen interpretation with like the, this idea of probability space and not being real or not making sense or not being asking the right questions until it converges on something that is real, until the probability becomes one, until it is in a place. Mm. Um the what it what actually is real up to that point is um you know, very very strange, and that's the crux of where physical interpretation comes. Is, is asking the question. What is real up to that point, or what is you know is the particle real, or is is this like is that also something that's coming? Is it something to do with observation? Is it something to do with there's hidden variables? Is there something? And yeah, we'll, <laughs> we'll get onto that in a minute, but let's let's keep going through some of the history. So there was in 1927 there was what's called the Fifth Solvay Conference. This is one of the, one of a um, line of these conferences where all these like brilliant mathematicians and physicists, basically the smartest people in the world at that point, all come together and start to discuss what the hell is going. On, and this is where a lot of these sorts of uh, debates were going on. Um, and Bohr and Heisenberg again, Heisenberg uh, guy who came up with a lot of maths and described a lot of this stuff, and uh, Bohr, Niels Bohr, atom guy, all that sort of thing. Um, they were just sort of like, well, we this is it, right? We figured it out the wave function just collapses and until that point it's probability space or it's bad question to ask what that means there seems to be something about at least in the history that's quite interesting that niels bohr seemed to be a very he was either very charismatic or he was very had a particular good way of describing things or something but he was more or less responsible for converting loads of people's minds to being very much on this train of copenhagen at this conference i'm um, not uh, surrounding the conference the conference yeah, i'm just talking sort of, about that, like, that general time yeah, yeah this is around this general time like they were very much uh, him and um a lot of other scientists were kind of settled into this idea this really strange abstract idea of this thing called superposition things like this or at least superposition as in um the up until a point you have to describe something as being in every possible state it could be sort of too, i think yeah. this is schrodinger's cat time this is a bit later on and we'll sort of um, um sort of get around to um and this this sort of experiment apparently came mostly from einstein actually which is interesting this is and this was essentially a reductio ad absurdum of of, quantum mechanics, of the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics. It, 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 so this yes, is like, like a response to... Okay, so what does this physically imply about our world? So this is where the interpretation starts to... Um, this was the first sort of more concrete example of what Copenhagen means as a physical interpretation. And essentially, the idea is you have a box, and you put a cat in it, and inside this box... Which is a cruel thing to do, don't do yeah, that. Yeah, don't, <laughs> no, don't, don't do it. And in this box, you have a atom in a container that is radioactively decaying, And if it decays, it'll release a load of poison and kill the cat. If it doesn't decay, it's not going to the poison won't be released. The mechanism won't, uh, and essentially, this this atom decaying is a quantum mechanical system. Um, So that means there's a probability attached to whether it's going to decay or not. Now, the Copenhagen interpretation says that before you open that box. Before you know before you open up this quantum system. Because it is equally it's equally real to say that the atom has decayed and hasn't decayed, because it exists in some kind of probability space where it isn't until it has actually collapsed into a thing, it it's only correct to say it's in a superposition. And so that whole system within the box, because it's all attached to it's all what's called So you're coherent. hearing the framework of what you're saying is real, basically. Um Well, I mean, that's sort of what quantum mechanics is. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah, But it's a
1: thought experiment to to bring this quantum effect to try and illustrate. If you were to bring it into a classical setting, this Mm. would be the implication, and you you that you bracket
2: off that whole the whole potentiality of that happening as as a superposition instead. Yeah. So what what you would say in the Copenhagen interpretation is inside that box until you've until you open the box if that's all an isolated quantum system, so everything in that box is evolving according to the Schrodinger equation, right? So this is, which is a fundamental description which is very well tested. Well, what the atom should evolve according to the Schrodinger equation, and and everything that happens in that box is a quantum system. It's an isolated quantum system. Mm -hmm. Um, And as we know, quantum systems evolve in this sort of probabilistic way. The wave function converge on one once the superposition is collapsed. But essentially, until something, until you interact with that quantum system, until you open the box, that's all an isolated quantum system. That all exists in this uh, wave-like space. It's, it exists in this probability field, or it's a bad question to ask what it, what it means to have converged before it becomes one thing. Um, and it essentially means that you get this thing called a superposition, which is to say that the best way to describe what the cat is in is a state of both dead and alive before you decohere the systems before you open up the box and look at the whether the cat is. And obviously, once you open up the box, it converges on one. Again, talking about the probability, the, the wave function collapses. So everything eventually has to be that particle. Everything eventually has to collapse into something that is real. But until the quantum system is interacted with, just like those detectors at the slits, where you're, you're, suddenly, you're interacting yeah, with yeah. the system, you're observing the system, if you don't observe the system, if you don't interact with it, Again, Niels Bohr. He said it's not. It's a bad question to ask. So, and, or Heisenberg, It's a probability. But whatever. But the, the general idea is that that whole quantum system. It's that it's in that weird bit before it gets to the other side of the interference pattern. Right? It's it's in this space of probability. It's in a superposition. The cat is in a superposition because that is part of the quantum system as much as the decaying atom is. Because they're all related. They're all described by the same wave function until you interact with it and. Your, all your quantum wave functions or whatever are become part of the same, described by the same system. Um, the only way to describe it would be that it's a bad question to sort of ask, or that cat is in a superposition of dead and alive because we don't know whether the atom has decayed or not. And it's a probability whether it has or not. Mm-hmm. And in the Copenhagen interpretation, that fact that it Either decays or hasn't is is a bad question to ask that it has or hasn't before you observe it before the wave function collapses. I'm getting flashbacks.
0: To see, if, the, um, you know, see if like where if we are. If a tree falls in a forest,
1: <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, kind of similar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, sure. Yeah, yeah. it's a, it's a really abstract thing to think about, and I think it's a point worth coming back to again. I think we've mentioned before, we'll probably mention again before the end, in that trying to apply our own understanding of the world to this subatomic world where this this quantum that we're trying to describe a quantum theory basically almost never makes sense any analogies that we draw are inherently flawed and this is why the schrodinger's cat thought experiment is just saying well we're going to try and draw some sort of analogy and comparison anyway and it's obviously really weird to a lot of people but everyone and it should be because it's illustrating that these quantum systems behave so differently from what we used to hmm. and the copenhagen interpretation as you mentioned, like a, it was most popular back then. I think I'm right in saying it still it's is. still the most yeah. popular. But it's by binar- no—I mean, I'm personally not comfortable with it, and I don't think many people. I don't think anyone is. I think even it the really people who advocate very, it. Very, I, yeah, I, I, like-
0: I think I think this is probably one of the uh, one of the reasons why there's some contention between STEM fields and humanities. I think it's it's bridging that gap. It's being able to, for instance, if you're trying to do philosophy, to be a philosopher of science it is an incredibly—it's a very hard position to have because you've got to understand this and you've got to understand philosophy and very few people understand either isolated to understand them both and be producing like novel ideas in that field is is you know that must, that must be intense. very difficult <laughs> yeah
2: mm-hmm. it's extremely intense trying to like match all these things and mm-hmm. then really have a you know a grounded understanding like it's it's sort of like this complexity uh bottleneck almost where you these things can get so heavy, especially like with the maths and whatever of these things. And it can get, there can be so many factors and things you have to consider and inter- different Ooh. interpretations and things like this. Yeah. You have to first understand and then you've got all the, you know, your philosophical musings and frameworks that yeah. you're going to try and apply all this stuff with. Um, I, I
0: So I, I stopped doing science at GCSE. After GCSE, I, got, I think I got a B and I just accepted that and moved on. I might have got an A, but definitely didn't deserve it if I did. But like... Since then, doing philosophy, I've come across very little science. But the only science I really have come into contact with is like very outdated stuff through basically learning the philosophy of science um, in a very roundabout way. It's that whole Kuhnian paradigm stuff we've talked about before, and it's really interesting because like learning this, it's it, it's just really nice to to track the history of a development in ideas
2: hmm. and obviously I'm, I'm even if very quickly it gets just yeah, yeah. totally mental like and if you know if you're also listening and you're feeling confused like this is honestly it's still confusing to people who like do this for years it's still very, listening to this very point,
0: well done <laughs> <laughs> yeah but like yeah so cause i'm thinking about paradigms in the in back of my mind and like the way that kuhn uh kind of likens a, a scientific revolution in a paradigm to a social revolution and like the way you were talking about how certain things weren't working in terms of the explanation. And that's that's kind of... Hmm. That's analogous to... I mean, we'll we're, 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 we're talk in another podcast about exactly yeah. what Kuhn is saying. Yeah, I have,
2: I have quite a lot to say about the... Yeah, yeah I of course. yeah, And, and, I, and I know like we
0: have kind of differed in some of the interpretations of it. And yeah, but basically, uh, analogously, he's saying that that is... That, that thing when certain explanations aren't working, when the model isn't fitting the function, uh, is basically... Akin to uh, like a political system failing, and you have these revolutionaries, and I think it's it's a it's a very useful way, and it's a very good way of uh, understanding what's happening conceptually. Mm-hmm. Thinking of some of these people as revolutionaries, uh, how the the consensus isn't working, and you kind of think of their, them overthrowing a government,
2: it's, it's kind yeah. of... I think one of the only problems with it is so much structure is retained. I mean, I've already mentioned, just going through this particular history we've gone through, things like the Maxwell equations are still very, very useful ways of describing light Yes, yeah, so until this, you get to a certain resolution and is, then it starts yeah, to become Yeah, this is difficult.
0: something I'm picking up on. It's like, there is no date when the government mm. gets overthrown. It's yeah. very gradual. Yeah. And it, this isn't like... I think yeah I think we've 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 thrown many narratives back because the right. one I studied was the transition from the Aristotelian to the um the Copernican model right. of the universe that was um it was it was that shift and I, basic, when we, by the time we got into newtonian physics i I mm. you know I'd already kind of written my essay based on that and obviously Kuhn only gives examples of like three paradigms anyway um, it, yeah it, it, this is this more interestingly highlights some of the
2: flaws in that analysis. Of, um, well, because I don't think it's necessarily Kuhn's analysis. I think a lot of it is the interpretation of his book, and we'll, we'll, like we'll get yeah. into that because I have a so, you know, as I said, but I read it. At
0: least it kind of it shows that these things are less clear
2: cut in mm. terms of the
0: development yeah. and the the gradual adoption of yeah. a new and paradigm. Also, it's
2: interesting how many how often we classify like. An entire sort of idea on one person, like so. I've mentioned Einstein, 1905 mm. e equals f hf, um, talking about quantizing light. But that that h that is critical in all of that stuff came five years earlier from Max Planck, and he was he was the first one to sort of sort of get it. And then Einstein took that idea. So it's like, who really quantized light? Was it Einstein? Or was it Planck? I mean, Planck didn't really know what it meant when it. He added the constant so yeah kind yeah. of, I and, and, and it's you, like there is there's so much structure that is sort of being retained and there's such a smooth transition and I think it, I think it's
0: easier to obviously think about um going back in history and science because it, you know it kind of it's kind of easier to understand uh, but even with like Copernicus and Galileo like that you know where did that paradigm begin and end is to call it one paradigm into another is you know and how are you classifying that because you're talking about consensus that's a very hard thing to gauge because i mean i guess that's how you judge what is fact at the time the scientific consensus of the community um and it, yeah what, i mean you had vatican scientists you had all these other people trying to kind of get in on the conversation as well it's like who who judges what um which i think is a very mm-hmm. interesting element of it but yeah even then you have other people uh, into that conversation and it's just it's just yeah what, there's no point where it kind of transitions mm. over very cleanly.
2: And there's still, like I said, there's still so much structure that we still use and it works within a given resolution. That's the way I tend to put it is in the word resolution because it, that's sort of almost a visual metaphor mm. for how it works. It's that you still, you can use Newtonian physics and it works if you're if in you, like a non-inertial reference frame as it's called and people can look that up if they want. Yeah. Um, and it still works. It's yes, exactly what says, yeah. Load, it's, it's, based, it's about constraints and it's about describing something within a given number of constraints and this has uh, uh, effects on emergence and things like this which again is like like all stuff I would really want to talk about in the future.
0: But. Yeah, the reality isn't changing. The model by which we used to, to understand reality is changing. But the model, the old models still work. Like I, you were saying about Aristotle and the feather loves the ground. That works. It's just, I mean, there, there is a point where you push that to its limits yeah. and it, it stops to work. But for right. the most part... It, you know that still depending works. on the context it can work yeah, yeah. So it, it's, it's when you introduce new contexts that it kind of starts to break down but it's like right. cartography based on Talimi's model of the universe still works people had star maps that were pretty much accurate it's, but their whole understanding of where everything was situated was total bollocks <laughs> but yeah. but it still it still works if you want to make a map of it or, or uh, like plot a course on the ocean mm. yeah